exciting news to report. Our event, Inspiring Prevention of Eating Disorders and Body Image Issues, is going online. This is an eating disorders training event for sufferers, mental health professionals, counsellors, nutritionists, dietitians, personal trainers, and anyone with an interest in eating disorders prevention. And it is now online, bringing people together, sharing a passion for change around these issues. It is an event to inspire, educate, and connect with like-minded others. So why do we need this event? We know that eating disorders are on the rise and many people in our culture experience devastating distress around body image. And as a result of this, so many people are desperately struggling with their physical health, mental well-being and self-worth. And we know that the incidence of eating disorders exploded in the pandemic and we continue to experience the aftermath of this. And the Lancet Group recently published research in June 2023, revealing a 42% rise in eating disorders among teenage girls as a result of the lockdowns, with similar rates of self-harm in this demographic. We need change at grassroots level. We need to implement change in society, changing the narrative and helping people to find a newfound understanding around relationship with food, psychology and body image. So be part of this change. We have brought together experts in the field to inspire and educate around prevention of these issues. And it's gonna be a one day event on the 30th of September, 2023 online. We're gonna be having lots of talks and workshops, talking about the catastrophic impact of diet culture, looking at the early years as foundation for good mental health, talking about the hidden eating disorders with 85% of people not being underweight, looking at diagnosis, early intervention and support, talking about issues with men getting eating disorders too around muscularity, talking about improving body image and developing radical self-love, understanding a broader definition of health, intuitive eating principles, is sugar really the enemy, finding a healthy relationship with exercise and movement, dealing with diet culture, and lots more. So if you want to up-level your knowledge, be inspired, connect with others from all over the world and be part of this transformation, click the link in the bio of the show notes to get your ticket. Saturday 30th of September, see you there. Hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Eating Disorder Therapist. And I'm so excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. Now today I have a guest on the show and I am talking to Matthew Campling. Matthew has, throughout his career, combined writing with his therapeutic interests. He's been working with clients since 1994, gaining a diploma in client-centered therapy and a BA honors in client-centered therapy and a master's degree in general psychotherapy. He also has postgraduate qualifications in emotional intelligence and CBT for anxiety and depression. Now, the start of Matthew's therapeutic journey was his own situation. He had two breakdowns before he was 21, the second after having had anorexia nervosa for a couple of years. Each time having to put himself back together with very little outside help, this was South Africa during the apartheid era, he learned about his psyche. He began putting this into practice, working as an advice writer, agony uncle for various publications. 
Then he became a therapist and he's written three books on eating disorders, including A Diary of a Male Anorexic, a memoir. During lockdown, Matthew published five novels on a variety of subjects. He has also produced 11 plays. Recently, he has been a member of the Pink Singers, London's LGBTQ plus community choir. And Matthew returned to work as a therapist six months ago, as well as taking up more work with clients with eating disorders and other issues. And he's also working with survivors of historical clerical abuse. So I'm really looking forward to speaking to Matthew today and particularly to hear more about his own recovery and then the work that he does with his clients in supporting them to overcome eating disorders. So Matthew has a diverse and really sort of interesting background and career, worked on so many creative projects, really looking forward to the conversation, going to be so much value here. Let's get to it. Hi, Matthew. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Hi, great to be talking to you. So Matthew, could I firstly please get you to introduce yourself to the listeners? Yes, certainly. So my name is Matthew Campling. I've been working with clients since 1994, but my involvement with eating disorders began in my childhood. My parents took us from rural Berkshire to South Africa, which was then under the apartheid regime when I was eight years old. And although previously I'd been a happy, popular little kid, By a couple of years of living under apartheid, I was eating a lot. I had got overweight. And then, of course, I got bullied because I was overweight. And this continued till I was 16. And I left school with no education. I did a couple of awful jobs that I was awful at. And then my parents scraped together the money to send me back to school to finish my education. And at that point, when I was about 18, I started dieting and exercising, and I lost a lot of weight. I felt excited about feeling in control. The problem was that I couldn't just eat. I could either overeat or undereat. And so by the time I was about 18 and a half, I was starting to be anorexic, and this just got worse. I was trying to combine keeping a job. I had a new job, which was awful. And I realize now that a lot of reason why it was awful was because I was a very, very thin person. And it just continued till I was about 20 and a half and I had a breakdown. And as a result of that, I was very, very thin, frightened. I knew that I was very ill. But at that time in South Africa, in Durban, there was nothing offered for people with eating disorders. And in a way, that was very helpful because, as I'll go on to say, in my own opinion, my observed opinion, a lot of what is done in eating disorder situations is not actually helpful in dealing with what is going on. Because in my understanding of what is going on, what has happened is that a dysfunctional defense mechanism, which I called the EDM, the eating disorder mechanism, has engaged. And it's engaged in order to help the individual deal with life. When life is overwhelming, when instead of having a sense of confidence and who you are, there are just big voids, the EDM activates 
and it fills up those voids with the action of the eating disorder. So, for example, if I was planning to go to a party, I would starve myself for a day because the EDM was saying to me, oh, if you're going to go to a party, there'll be food there. You need to make sure that you don't eat in order to be strong. It doesn't matter what the EDM tells the individual, what it does, the effect that it has is to create an internal dialogue between the person and the mechanism. So this is all happening on the inside. And so on the outside, you can get concerned parents saying, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you eating? Promise me if you loved me, you'd eat. And on the inside, you've got the mechanism saying, oh, no, don't eat, don't eat. That would be a terrible thing to do. So it creates this ongoing battle between what's going on on the inside and what's going on on the outside, what's observed. And then the poor individual person is caught in the middle, doesn't know how to do it, is trying to get it right in terms of, well, if I don't eat, then somehow I feel better. And on the outside, people are pressuring, bullying them, you know, demanding that they put on weight. And so just a slight tangent in terms of eating disorder recovery, what I've been horrified by over the years, and particularly when I did the background research for my master's in psychotherapy, which was on my experience of anorexia and what had been helpful in my recovery, when I read through all the academic research, I was appalled by the way in which people on the outside saw bullying and controlling as ways of getting the person to put on the weight. Because when I was speaking about my experience around the country, one young woman sent me an email where she said that at last somebody who understands I've been, I've been incarcerated in eating disorder facilities and I've obeyed what the facilities told me to, I've put on the weight and then I've gone home and just taken all the weight off again. Because the emphasis on regain, regain, weight regain is not, in my experience, how you heal the person and bring them out of a position of being anorexic. Well, thank That's you for sharing. A, There's so much in there. I was going to say, could I sort of pick up on a few things? Sure, that yes, you've talked about? <laughs> <laughs> so, Matthew, I guess I'm thinking as well, obviously, like, quite a lot happened to you, didn't it, at quite a young age, you know, big move, you know, moved out of your environment. And then, like you said, perhaps you were overweight, you experienced bullying, your whole kind of structure and stability, I guess, was sort of turned on its head. So I guess it's very understandable that, you know, you may have been struggling a bit with your sort of mental well-being, even if you hadn't had the sort of words for it or whatever sort of back then. And I guess what's interesting is, what do you make of the fact that actually you developed an eating disorder? Because I guess there could have been other ways that you had, you know, used to cope yes, or try yeah. to escape. Yeah. So what do you make yeah. of that? Well, it's very interesting in that only about up to 2% of people will develop a full-blown eating disorder. And one theory that I've read is that it takes three generations of malfunctioning family behavior 
to create a person with an eating disorder. And in my family, you go back three generations and there's huge amounts of dysfunctional behavior going on. So there is that, that it's partly historical. It doesn't just come from nowhere. I also think that people have different ways of responding to the dysfunction in a family. For example, my older brother, who was two years older than me, used to lie on his bed all weekend drinking port. He used to hide the port bottles under the bed. And my mother on the Monday, when he'd gone back to work, would remove the empty port bottles. But she never talked to my brother about the situation. It was beyond her. And obviously, there was a different way of responding to this sense of the voids. For me, I liked food. I liked particularly sugar and chocolate. And it was something immediate. Whereas I've never been somebody who's been particularly focused on alcohol. And <laughs> since when I turned 50, my body, I started getting migraines from drinking. I just stopped drinking. So since then, I've never drunk. And so it's a different, you know, what it is among the individuals. My younger brother appeared to react to the family dysfunction by becoming a complete little shit, if I can use that <laughs> expression. He became very South African, everything from anti-Semitic to racist, homophobic, everything that so that in its own way could be seen as a, a way of responding to the sense of dysfunction in the family. And my sister, who was nine years younger than me, she responded by running away from about the age of 16. And I had to once go and get her out of the flat, beg her to come home. There was all kinds of stuff going on there. So all of these were different ways of responding to a dysfunction. Mm, so interesting and I think what's incredible like when you're talking about families with three generations of like trauma dysfunction or whatever I mean I think probably most families isn't it really considering you know just how much support there has been in the past for like kind of mental health and the sort of thinking particularly in like the UK like the sort of stiff upper lip and not talking about feelings and you know don't you think most people listening are going to think I probably got three generations there. I think everybody, yes, I agree with you that there are different. I think, for example, that in England, everybody who went through the Second World War, who yeah. went through being bombed, had some form of what we'd now call PTSD complex. And I think that the PTSD complex juxtaposed with, as you say, the stiff upper lip. I think, though, that, oh, and the other thing I think is that <laughs> If you look at documentaries about how the youth of today are behaving at the weekends of going out and getting absolutely screaming drunk, it is not as though eating disorders are the only way in which people respond to a sense of distress in society itself. But focusing specifically on eating disorders, it's very interesting that on the one hand, historically, there have been observations of eating disorders since the 12th century. But in terms of the academic background and understanding, that's really only been going on since the 1970s, when the brilliant academic Hilda Brook wrote two books about eating disorders in the 1970s. And in the first one, she hadn't even divided anorexia from bulimia. 
but she had by the second, which I think came out in about 1978, The Golden Cage. And so we are in an area, we are in a, in terms of historical, where we don't have a lot of understanding about what is going on regarding eating disorders. But my overall sadness and concern is that the way that a lot of eating disorders are responded to is through control from the outside. So you'll have people being told, you know, people who are in a facility will be told, well, if you put on a pound, you can go home. But if when you come back, you've taken off 600 grams, then we're going to take your pillow away from you. And so this very crude sense of carrot and stick, in terms of my own experience, how I recovered from anorexia was by understanding that there was this mechanism and by very carefully negotiating with it. I figured that, you know, since I would hear from the mechanism, it would say, oh, don't do that. If I was looking at food, I thought, okay, well, maybe I can talk to it. So I would lie in my bed and say in my head, I know you're not trying to hurt me. I know you're trying to be helpful, but the way you're doing it is not helping. And I need to take back the energy. I need to have the control back with me so that I can eat more, so that I can return to living in a more normal way. And being about 18, 19, 20, I can remember the pain and isolation of what it was like to, for example, go into a party or anywhere where food was and feel this rigidity inside me that I couldn't eat any of it. And if I did, I would unleash a torrent and I'd just eat and eat. And then after that, I'd go home and I wouldn't eat for a couple of days. So it was a hugely dysfunctional eating pattern, whichever way it happens. So you can't negotiate with it in terms of, well, I'm just going to leave you on one side. To me, you have to take back the energy from the anorexic self and return it to the healthy self. And as I say in my book, one of the big things that helped me was that I was living in Durban. It's a very lovely atmosphere. And I, although I didn't have medical support, I did have a beautiful environment in which to recover. And I mentioned this specifically because I talked to a young woman who is so desperately thin that you cannot believe that somebody could live and be so thin. And what she said was she was incarcerated in a facility. And after each meal, she would then go up to her room and desperately exercise until she could burn off that feeling of being stuffed. What she said she wanted was just to be taken in a car round the country so she could see beautiful things, so that she wasn't constantly focusing on how she was feeling inside. And so for me, as I write in my book, there was one occurrence when I was swimming, which I used to go to the at the university pool, like five o'clock in the morning and swim. And there was one morning when I turned at the end of the lane and at the end of the lap. And as I came up, my hair was long and 
it sparkled, the sun, the coming up sun sparkled in my eyes. And it was such an extraordinary visual image of life and of joy that those are the sorts of things which people need. They need nourishing, emotionally, visually nourishing images rather than to be force-fed. Time for a short advertisement break. Now, I know we talk a lot about food freedom on this podcast and how important it is to take care of yourself mentally and physically as you learn to navigate a culture inundated with toxic messaging. One of the best ways to take care of yourself is through exercise. But I know it can be really hard to find an exercise program that isn't rooted in these toxic messages and doesn't feel triggering. Well, I recently met Katie, the owner of an amazing new exercise company called We Shape. And We Shape doesn't focus on calorie counting, tracking, how much you work out, or making you feel bad about your body to get you motivated. Instead, they create a customized exercise routine for you that helps you connect with and care for your body rather than feeling pressure to change it. They help you learn to set intentions that come from a place of self-care rather than self-judgment. And they support you every step of the way with an amazing community and live coaching. So you can make exercise a self-care practice that helps you feel better in your body and about your body. Plus, they're giving listeners of the show the chance to try it out for two full weeks for free. Just head on over to www.weshape.com forward slash freedom or check out the link in the show notes to get started today. Yeah, and it's so interesting. (laughs) I'm so with you actually about the whole not controlling people because I think it's so important, isn't it, in recovery to step into that place yourself where you feel that you are finding your voice and you are making that choice from an empowered place. And I think, you know, thankfully, I think services for eating disorder recovery have improved significantly. I mean, I'm even thinking about sort of like the mantra program for anorexia. It talks Mm -hmm. a lot about the kind of healthy, flourishing self and also using like the Maudsley animal model where I don't know if that's something you've come across in your work, but it's a lovely kind of metaphor where, you know, clinicians and parents, et cetera, are encouraged to like not be the rhino who sort of tells someone what to do not to be the jellyfish who gets really kind of anxious and overly emotional, not to be the ostrich who ignores the problem, but to sort of be the dolphin who swims alongside, who listens, who asks open questions, who validates, who really shows the person who's suffering a lot of empathy and understanding. Well, that sounds Uh, lovely. That sounds true. (laughs) I mean, I think it's so refreshing, isn't it? Because I think you know, as you're sort of talking about as well, you know, talking about the lady you're talking about is extremely thin. I think it is, and it has been many people's experience where they've have felt absolutely over-controlled and actually it's probably strengthened the eating disorder more, hasn't it? Because of someone who's felt they're in a corner almost. Yes, because if you think of the disorder as being a defense mechanism, then the more it's attacked from the outside, the more energy will be taken from the healthy self into the anorexic self in order to defend the person. So absolutely, the concept of the dolphin is so much more nourishing than anything. There were a couple of documentaries a few years back where these people working in facilities would talk about how they were determined to break the will of the people with eating disorders 
And I heard of one place where they would deliberately go and get the anorexic patients in the middle of the night and bring them to the facility. And the people already in the facility would lie awake thinking, oh, yeah, there's another one, because they could hear them screaming, screaming with fear, screaming with the unknown. And for God's sake, what sort of thing are you doing to these people, to these people with anorexia? I can remember when I had anorexia, asking a shopkeeper something, and his response was to absolutely scrunch up his face with anger. And I think that people do get angry, they get afraid by people with anorexia. And then they attempt to take over control and force the people with anorexia to put on weight. And that whole thing, for example, by the way, in terms of weight, when I was anorexic, I used to weigh myself every day and it was the highlight of the day. And I would hope that I had lost another little bit of weight. So that's giving a pair of bathroom scales a huge amount of power. Now, when I stopped, when I realized that I was very ill and I was able to start recovery, I never weighed myself again. I didn't want to know what I weighed. I wanted to become more aware of myself through how I could feel myself coming back into life. But I have read how in certain, in these facility places, they run everything by the weight. You know, you lose 600 grams, they punish you. You put on 600 grams, you get whatever. So in other words, they are obsessed. They are obsessed with the weight in a similar way to the way that I was obsessed with weight when I had the illness. Yeah, I know. It's so interesting, isn't it? It's just repeating that pattern of over-control, where I guess the person is already over-controlling themselves and probably had some over-control pre-illness, and it's just a big kind of exacerbation of everything, isn't it? All coming together. So Matthew, I was going to ask you as well, in terms of like, you know, actually your work with clients and your own work in really, um, you know, overcoming this, obviously you've started to talk a bit about this already in terms of like not weighing yourself, like challenging that voice in your head, finding some of the kind of beauty in your environment. Rather than, rather than challenging, I would say working with the voice. You know, the BEAT, which is the Eating Disorders Association, I have never thought that calling themselves beat and having their slogan eating disorders will be beaten is the point it has to in my opinion be understood to be a dysfunctioning defense mechanism but it is part of the person's psyche so we don't want to beat somebody's psyche we want to gently gently rephrase things and allow a channel of energy to move from the control of the disorder to an ordered healthy place do you see you you understand I'm sure you understand what I mean yeah no it makes a lot of sense actually yeah because of you know I guess just when one says the word challenging or beat this already it's coming with that kind of forceful energy isn't it and we're not wanting to do that you're kind of you know you're wanting to sort of like gently and compassionately and with yes. curiosity, I guess, explore, mm. aren't you? And it takes all the resistance out of the process or a lot of the resistance. Absolutely, yes. And in terms of, I mean, I've had clients come to me specifically because they wanted to get pregnant. 
And they were terrified that if they got pregnant, the physical changes in their body would cause the illness to absolutely react. And so this was, in both cases, I'm pleased to tell you that they went on to have very successful births and two new children in the world. Mm -hmm. So I was personally very thrilled by that. Because, but but uh, these were people who had spent years going from one method to another and hadn't found any way of finding a way to be with themselves in terms of the demands of the illness. And it goes into what I'm always fascinated by, which is all our different energies. The Enneagram, which we talked a bit about before we started recording, the 12 type Enneagram, which is the book that I've written, this is about different energies which are conceived as planetary energies. So you'll have the lunar type, which is the moon, and or the Mercury type, which is obviously relating to Mercury, or the Jupiter type, which is the biggest of the different essence types. But all of these, I find the whole world, the whole universe of energies is fascinating. And the way in which one day we don't have enough energy for something, but if we leave it in a couple of days, we will have the energy. In other words, that there's all kinds of things going on inside us, which will grow our energies. And those energies can be used in good or in bad ways. So people use the energy that they have to, for example, deliberately not eat and in this way they twist the energies but if you come into a space where you can be nurtured then that will then unfold again and i'll say to people in counseling and therapy that if you start to trust what is going on inside you rather than trying to control it it will start to do its work it will start to Sometimes clients say to me, I don't know why it's changed, but I'm aware that I now have more choice over what I do. I have more options. I'm more aware of things because we don't have to have everything in our control. We can trust, we can allow what in terms of the Gurdjieff work is called intuitive system. Because, for example, if we've got a headache, we don't have to open a hole in our head and stick the tablet in there. We take it through our mouth and our body knows where to put that new input. And so with eating disorders as well, when we're recovering from the fear and the distress of an eating disorder, we principally need to find ways of letting our intuitive system help us so that rather than fighting ourselves, it's doing its proper job. Mm. Yeah, no, it makes so much sense, doesn't it? Sort of like being able to sort of go within and not trying to control as well what's going on within. But I really like the way you're describing actually sort of developing that intuitive system. Because I know what I find with so many of my clients is that they have just lost so much of that. They've looked outside externally to the world, I guess, for whether they're good enough. You know, their worth is often very conditional. And I think that's been exacerbated even more, hasn't it, with the kind of social media world that we live in, where there's so much (laughs) 
opportunity to compare yourself, isn't it, every moment of the day. And I think I find with many of my clients, in a way, they've just completely sort of lost touch almost with that intuitive system and perhaps just have no sense of what it really means to go within because of it's just become such a norm in a way to look externally for that kind of validation or control or whatever. Yeah, and also people are frightened by what they see when they look inside. And so they distract themselves and the mechanism also distracts them. But my experience, my overall experience from my own illness was that the best way to recover is to become a friend of yourself, to be able to trust yourself. And I've also thought about how, you know, we see the whole world, we see the whole of life through our senses through our emotions and through our mind. And so that is what we fundamentally have to be in accord with rather than being concerned with who's got the new handbag or who's got the new shoes. And those are all symbols of how we have lost our way, how we have lost our sense of what is nourishing what is important, what is worthwhile. And recovering from an eating disorder can also be a way of learning a huge amount about life itself. And so through that, even if there are several years lost to the eating disorder, if you can come out on the other side, you will come out with true wisdom. And that wisdom will just grow and continue to inform how you work and what you experience in life. So Matthew, for anyone listening who's really sort of struggling at the moment and feeling sort of massively controlled by that eating disorder sort of voice, you sort of talking about, you know, starting to get back into the sort of in the body, starting to get more in touch with the senses, like what would you suggest perhaps to someone as a first step to begin to move along that road? Well, in my own experience, I didn't have therapy. I made little experiments with myself to begin to understand what had gone wrong and to start to look at how I could reverse that. I do also think that having the right sort of therapy input is obviously hugely important and helpful. So if people have access to the right kind of therapeutic support, they can then benefit from what the therapist has learned. Otherwise, I used to write messages to myself. I used to write things like, eat, sleep, relax, don't worry. And I'd put them inside my cupboard door and I dated them. So when I had the same idea, I would see that previously, a couple of weeks ago, I'd thought, oh, right, eat, sleep, relax. And in this way, on my own, being my own therapist, I created a dyadic relationship between myself in terms of my mind and my psyche. This was the two, the dyadic way in which I was able to reduce the demands coming from the anorexic self. And when you talk about the voice, when I work with clients, I say, right, what you've just said has come from the anorexic voice. 
because we assume that everything we say comes from a good place. But when you have an illness, some of those, it's coming from the anorexia itself. And so by one of the big ways in which I work with clients is to make people aware of the different voices that are going on both inside them and also what they're saying. And in this way, it's a big help to help people separate the healthy self from the anorexic self. And that anorexic self invades every part, invades the thoughts, the emotions, the body. So it takes a will, a will that grows in the healthy self, the little healthy self. But that will, if it can grow, then that person will start to have more and more ability to separate out the actions of the anorexia and in this way rebuild the healthy self. I think it's so helpful and also empowering to, you know, hear what you've just said. You know, I'm a firm believer myself, really, that, you know, therapy, external support and everything, it can be the right therapy, the right help can be massively helpful, but nothing beats actually I don't know if I want to use the word beat but nothing is as valuable I guess as developing that relationship with yourself and getting to know yourself and like that you're saying in a way separating the healthy voice from the non-healthy voice or whatever language you want to use but that's where the magic is isn't it when you start to really develop that fine-tuned awareness and you can notice when you're having these thoughts or these feelings or these behaviors but you can sort of develop that pause and you know being able to kind of like you know almost like look down on what's going on and then begin to gently start to challenge it and repeat that again and again and again and that's where you really start to build momentum I would also say that I would encourage people to seek out the right sort of therapeutic help because when you are on your own and it's all going around inside your head you may be listening to the wrong voices You may actually be agreeing with the anorexic voice, but not realizing it because the anorexic defense mechanism is there to allow the mechanism to survive. And if you think of the film 2001, A Space Odyssey, the computer, which you can think of as a mechanism, the computer, HAL, shuts down the lives of all the scientists aboard because the computer has decided that they are getting in the way of its progress. So do you understand what I mean? That the voice of the illness is hugely subtle and hugely cunning. And in a slightly different context, I once shared in separate bedrooms, a flat with a recovering alcoholic. And he eventually I moved out because in his recovery, he became very angry. But years later, after all the terrible things that had happened to him and to his family. His father was an alcoholic preacher. It was just awful stuff. He went back to drinking because, he told me, he'd read somewhere that if you were on the macrobiotic diet, then you could drink. And my thought was, that is the cunning of the illness that it has found a way past his defences, which he now agrees with. But of course, it was complete rubbish, the idea that a macrobiotic diet 
could mean that you could drink the alcohol that was previously poisoning you. And so just to get back to eating disorders, my only caution there would be that, I mean, I was able to regain health. But I certainly, when years later, when I started studying, you know, becoming a therapist, and then particularly when I started to develop working with people with eating disorders, I learned a lot more. I learned things that I hadn't thought about before, because before I had been doing everything intuitively, instinctively. But there are different layers. And certainly having somebody, the right sort of person who can help you on your journey is a very positive thing. So Matthew, you've written several books about eating disorders, haven't you? So perhaps could you tell the listeners about those books? I'm sure some people might be interested to get hold of copies okay. of them or read. Yes, great. They're all available on Amazon, or they should be. If not, let me know. The first one was <laughs> Eating Disorder Self-Cure, which has sections on anorexia, bulimia and overweight. That was my first. What I was trying to do was have something that my clients could buy and then read in between sessions so that even though there wasn't the intensity of support that you'd get from a session, there was something that you could go home and read the way that in the past I've read books like that. Those books became lifelines. So that was the first book. And then the second book was Therapeutic Weight Loss, because this was specifically focusing on overweight when it has a negative psychological cause where people are not happy being the weight that they are, but when they are unhappy, but they find they're unable to take off the weight. And so it went into the various extra details that I had originated. One is the idea of a base weight. So if your base weight is, say, 14 stone, and you take off two stone, It's then hugely difficult to keep that two stone off if your base weight is set internally at 14 stone. And in terms of the organization Weight Watchers, I've heard that 97% of people going to Weight Watchers, and these figures are a few years ago, 97% were people coming again. So in other words, they'd come, they'd take off the weight, and then they put it back on again. That was one of the things that I've covered in the second book, Therapeutic Weight Loss. The third book, which I wrote in lockdown, is Diary of a Male Anorexic, which is my story. And previously, I had written about myself, particularly when I wrote my master's dissertation on my experience of anorexia and what had been helpful in my recovery. But that has obviously been written from an academic point of view. And in this diary, I imagined going through the days in terms of the way in which when you start having an eating disorder, you don't go, hey, I've got an eating disorder. It's a gradual process. You're not aware of it. And you can have very exciting moments like when your trousers fit properly or when you just find out that other people can eat, but you don't have to. And all of these seem to be good at the beginning, but what happens is it starts to go downhill. So in the diary, the first part is talking about my becoming anorexic, which finishes with my breakdown when I was 20 and a half. And then the second part is about my recovery, what was valuable and the different experiences that I had that helped to move me forward 
in the right way. And the third section comes from the work that I've done studying the eating disorders world. That's about various theories and also my theories. And then the fourth and fifth part. So this book is when I was in South Africa during the apartheid era in the 1970s and up to the mid 80s. And South Africa under apartheid was a very crazy place, a very mad place. And so I've written the last two parts are just the various things that happened day by day in South Africa, and also my own coming out as a gay man and how I was then impacted by living under apartheid. And so that's what the, so it's subtitled A Memoir of Illness, Recovery, Apartheid, Family, and Life After Recovery. And it finishes in 1986 with my leaving South Africa with my life there in ruins, in shreds. My parents were getting divorced. My mother was in and out of a mental ward. And South Africa was going through the beginning of the breakdown of apartheid in what was called the state of emergency. And so all of this was going on. And anyway, I came back to England with nothing. So this book finishes with me arriving at Dover with just my two suitcases and a great sense of my life there is over and what is going to happen now that I'm in England. Mm. Oh. Oh, thank you for sharing. I mean, I'm sure a lot of the listeners are going to be very intrigued and interested, you know, to find out more because I think it's a lot of wisdom and shared. That's good. And I have got some spaces available for people if they're interested in talking to me either face to face. I live in North London or obviously on Zoom. So I don't know. Should I give my email address or? Yes, yeah, so sure. That was my next question, actually. Like, how can people get in touch with you either to sort of follow up on the podcast or, yes, if you, you know, to maybe work with you as well? Right. So on counseling directory i do have a page which gives information so that's on counseling directory but also my email is campling.m at gmail.com brilliant so i should make sure that goes in the show notes matthew so you know people can get in touch if they want to so thank you great well thank you for this opportunity i've enjoyed it Yeah, well, thank you so much. You know, just really appreciate you coming on today and sharing. And I think just so much value for the listeners. So really appreciate it. Thank you. Terrific. Bye. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation just as much as I did. Do go and check out all of Matthew's details in the show notes. If you're not following me already, you might want to seek me out on Instagram at the Eating Disorder Therapist underscore. And for further support with your relationship with food, do go to the eatingdisordertherapist.co.uk. You might want to join my bite-sized eating disorder therapy, only £5 a month, an additional access to podcast and video content. And you can try it first for a week for free if you want to test it out. You might also want to join our transformative, inspirational event, Saturday the 30th of September 2023, Inspiring Prevention of Eating Disorders and Body Image Issues. It's online now. There's going to be 13 different professionals coming together, giving talks and workshops all about eating disorders prevention. It's going to be really a day you don't want to miss. So do go check out the link in the show notes if you want more information. If you enjoy this podcast, I'd be so grateful if you'd follow, rate and review as it helps it reach so many more listeners. Thank you so much for listening today and I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon. Mm -hmm.